Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is happening? What's going on? How's everybody doing? Hope your Monday's off to a fantastic start as I deliver everything in the sports universe on a gigantic silver platter. Here as I deliver it all on this week's edition of the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this content as well as for those who've been banging with me from episode 1 to now 97, just three away from the century mark. I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, November the 4th, in the year of our Lord, 2019. Here's what I have on tap for you. A few news and notes from the NBA, including Steph Curry breaking his hand. So for all those Warrior fans out there who are rocking the hats, the jerseys, the hoodies, whatever, you could put them back in the closet because they're going to be irrelevant for the next few months. Not only that, but also the antics of Joel Embiid rears its ugly head last week against Carl Anthony Towns and the Minnesota Timberwolves. I'll share my thoughts about that. We'll also have the MLB closeout. That's right. The World Series, as historic as it was, where the Washington Nationals win their first ever World Series title over the Houston Astros. And I'm going to get to everything that A.J. Hinch screwed up on, especially in that Game 7. Also, all the free agents to be. That's right. Free agency is now going to be in full effect. And also, the Met manager has finally been named. In fact, it was officially introduced just minutes ago. Carlos Beltran, the 22nd manager of the New York Mets. So you know, I have to throw in my two cents about that. But we're going to start off this program with the NFL, of course. Week 9, almost in the books. Tonight you have Cowboys and Giants out of MetLife right here in the backyard. We'll see if the Giants can pull off an upset where the Cowboys are certainly trying to get their sea legs after starting the year 3-0 and and then hitting that speed bump, losing three in a row, including one to the Jets, which we'll get to just in a couple of minutes. But Week 9 closes, and the storylines that come out of this week, the games, you had some games there that certainly... We're interesting whether the game in Pittsburgh, I'll get into a little bit later, where Jacoby Brissett goes out with a knee injury and Bobby Hoyer had to come in and save the day, or Brian Hoyer, one of the Hoyers. He had to come in there and save the day almost, where Adam Vinatieri, who not only missed an extra point, but also missed a game-winning attempt there at the end. So the Steelers now reached to 500 at 4-4, and where they started off 0-3 and now won four of the last five. But the big storyline, to me, of the, game, of the games yesterday was last night in Baltimore where the Ravens ran roughshod over the New England Patriots. And that was a game that I'm not going to say I saw coming. But if you listen to the podcast last week, you know that this Patriot defense, in my estimation, my eyes and what I've seen, and people can say, J Reels, you're nuts. You're off your rocker. Look what they've done these first eight weeks, 61 points, etc. And I won't even go to the point of the teams that they played. Yes, because we could talk about they played the Jets twice and they played the Giants. And they play the Dolphins. And they play the Redskins. And teams like that where they couldn't even muster an offense to save their life. But to me, this team, especially from a defensive standpoint, they don't have game records on that team. And not to say you need to have a game record. I get that. People could be like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, what do you think is happening in Chicago with Khalil Mack? How's that defense doing? We could go through a bunch of other teams that have good defensive players or even great defensive players. The J.J. Watts of the world who's out for the rest of the year. But he's a guy that always wins the defensive player of the year. But what do the Texans do? come postseason, and obviously the Patriots are always, or it seems to be that they're always the last team standing. But my point is, is that this Patriot defense, as we've seen time and time again, they can be run on, as evidenced yesterday. And I get that they have an electrifying quarterback that could certainly make anybody look foolish, as you saw a little bit last night. But when you have Mark Ingram running the ball the way he did, and obviously Lamar Jackson, what he's able to bring forth, which a lot of quarterbacks in this league can't. And a lot of people know, and you've heard from past podcasts, I'm not singing the praises of Lamar Jackson just yet. But you got to give him credit last night and give credit for what they've done. They capitalized on some turnovers as well. And they won a game where their offense scored 30 because the other seven, of course, was on that fumble by Julian Edelman, which was returned for a touchdown. So they put up 37 and 30 on that defense. And I understand it's just one game. Can't get crazy. Can't look at that and say, oh boy, here comes the... Skies, they're going to now fall on this Patriot defense. But the competition is going to get stiffer here. As you see over the next few weeks, whether they're playing the Eagles, whether they're playing the Cowboys, hopefully Patrick Mahomes comes back at the end of this five-game stretch that they're going to go through against not only quality teams, but also quality offenses. And we could throw this one out the window, and rightfully so. But I've been talking about this team, it seems like for years, where this defense has a bend-but-don't-break mentality. And when you're going up against the dregs of the league in the first eight weeks that they did, and then now they finally see a quality offensive opponent, as I said, throw it out the window, okay, fine, but you certainly have to keep that in the back of your mind to think that, hmm, 
let me see how this offense performs or this defense is going to perform against the likes of the Cowboys, the Eagles, the Texans, and to round this off, hopefully, the Patrick Mahomes-led Chiefs. So that's the one take you got from there. And give credit to the Ravens. Obviously, they chewed up the clock almost 38 minutes as far as time and possession is concerned. Patriots didn't really do much on offense. They had a couple breaks themselves, but at the same time, they certainly didn't make the plays and give it up. The Ravens have now put themselves probably in the likes of maybe a two seed. Now, granted, we still got another eight weeks to go in the season, but they're putting themselves in good position. They do play Houston later on in the year where the Texans will go to Baltimore to play them. So that's going to be very interesting from a tiebreaker scenario when you get to the end of the year and teams leading their divisions. And they already lost to Kansas City, if you remember, earlier this year. So that also something that you got to keep in mind. But that was takeaway number one last night, that game between Pats and Ravens. The other thing that I'm going to take away from yesterday is the Packers. And we know, understand they got to that tremendous start, 7-1. and one. And again, teams are going to have those type of games where they just can't get in sync. Where the Packers were shut out in the first half. And they seemed like they were going backwards the whole game. And give it up to the Chargers. The Chargers were able to... Now, they again, they didn't capitalize on a lot of red zone opportunities. But they were able to put themselves in a big of a lead where they didn't have to worry about Aaron Rodgers making a miraculous comeback. And usually with his Hail Marys at the ends of halves. But the Packers right now can't say that you raise an eyebrow to think like, Oh, geez, is this where they're going to start skidding? Obviously, they've been on a tremendous roll. But it's something that you're going to look at and wonder if there's going to be any chinks in their defense and in their armor too moving forward with the first-year head coach and Matt LaFleur. Besides that, you look at the Chiefs, where Matt Moore did a tremendous job, considering that the Vikings and Chiefs were back and forth. And one thing that just, I was befuddled. I could not believe all the Viking fans, and again, it's not a long trip to make it from Minnesota down to Missouri. But man, when you looked at that one shot, if you watched the game, and I was watching on the red zone, where the crowd was in unison, it seemed, and it felt like a home game for the Vikings. So that was tremendous. And as we all know, Kansas City is one of the best home field advantages in the league. And to see all that purple and gold in the crowd and just clapping at the same time. And I'm sure they were chanting the skull chant that they do. Uh, just the, again, it was one of those things where I was just totally surprised to see. But even with all the Viking faithful making the trek down to Kansas City, it wasn't enough as the Chiefs were able to pull out a 26-23 victory. Harrison Bucker with two field goals there late in the game, including the icer at the buzzer. And the Chiefs continue to play pretty well without their main man in a one Patrick Mahomes. So that was a good game to see. As a matter of fact, that was probably the best game of the one o'clock games. I mean, you want maybe the Colts and Steelers, but to me that, uh, again, when you're talking about two quality opponents, and that's not the, not the Steelers by any stretch, but at the same time, that was the marquee game of that hour. So that's what you get there. But here's the thing that I'm going to look at. Because a lot of these other games, all right, Buffalo won, beat the Redskins. Well, shocker, who cares? You're not going to look at the Eagles. All right, maybe the Eagles now at 5-4. and four, And they're looking and hoping that they could keep their fingers crossed to the Giants to, to them to do the Eagles a favor by beating the Cowboys tonight. And the Eagles, as we all know, they certainly have stubbed their toe here in these first nine games of the season. But now they're looking to maybe not only get some help, but hopefully get their... Season on track here, beating up a bad Bears team. The Panthers get back on the winning track, beating the Titans. No surprise there. You know, a lot of these games, you know, the Raiders winning against Detroit. Raiders are trying to have some sort of respectability considering the disaster of last year and everything that happened in training camp with Antonio Brown. But the games that I want to get to, uh, even give the Niners props, I have to throw them in the mix because they played on Thursday, so they kind of get a little bit forgotten. But the one thing that you cannot forget is that they're the last team standing as far as the unbeatens in the National Football League. And who would have thought if anybody would have placed a wager as to who would be the last team to be undefeated in the NFL, especially after eight games, I bet you nobody on God's green earth would pick the team that plays in Santa Clara and that'd be the Niners. And when you look ahead for the Niners real quick, now people are going to start to think, and I, you'd be off your rocket to think, oh, okay, they go undefeated or how far can the streak go? Well, they have a Monday night game next week at home, though, against the Seahawks, which is going to be fascinating because it kind of renews that rivalry. And that was a good rivalry for a few years. That's when you had, of course, John Harbaugh 
Colin Kaepernick. We know about the Richard Sherman, Michael Crabtree rivalry. So for those few years when they were at the top of the NFC, those were definitely grudge matches to say the least. And now hopefully they can rekindle that as both teams are very good and both teams are trying to see if they could not only get the NFC West but also host a home game in the postseason. Still got plenty of football to play, but that's a fascinating game from that regard. And the Seahawks give it up yesterday. The Bucks played long and hard, but they actually won in overtime against uh, Tampa. It's weird with Tampa. They're another schizophrenic team. Well, from one game to the next, they could look like the worst team in the league or one of the bottom feeders. And then next thing you know, they're going to compete. Whether they scored 55 against LA uh, with the Rams a few weeks back and then even yesterday, making it the game against the Seahawks where they unfortunately couldn't pull it out at the end. Now, as far as the Niners are concerned, they have the Seahawks there on a Monday night, a week from tonight. And then after that, you look at the schedule and it does kind of get a little dicey because they do have the Cardinals at home, which you're looking at and you say, okay, fine. But then now they have the Packers coming into their building after that. And then for the Thanksgiving weekend, they have to go to Baltimore to play the Ravens. So I would think by the time we get to that Raven game, they're either going to lose to the Packers or possibly lose to Seattle, even though the game's at home. And then go to Baltimore. So you, this streak is probably not going to last any longer. Maybe it goes to 10-0 before the Packer game. And who knows where the Packers will be at that point. As far as where they are in the standings in the NFC North. But right now, when you're looking to see how far this streak could go, I could probably see it going up to 10, but that's going to be it. Now, if it goes past that, we'll worry about that when we get to it. I could see it was a thing where we could look back and say, all right, well, maybe they're not going to win until week 12, 13, 14, but... It looks like after week 10, they're going to face some stiff competition. So that's what you have with the Niners. But the other things that I'm going to look at here, especially from yesterday, and if you're a Jet fan out there, you may want to close your ears or maybe even open them to the fact that this is going to be a little bit of therapy here. And I got nothing against the Jets. I got nothing against their coach. I got a little bit against their organization because I look at my own baseball organization and to me, the Mets and Jets are synonymous with just failure. And I understand it may seem a little bit strong, But maybe the word, if not failure, I'm going to say incompetent. Because, and I'll get to the Mets later on, for whatever the reason, the ownership just needs a reboot. And we get that they just can't go off and sell the team as if they're selling a used car. We understand that Christopher Johnson isn't just going to say, well, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to sell the team. Granted, he could probably get $2.5 billion for his organization and just ride off into the sunset and hopefully give it to someone that would be not only worthy of running an NFL franchise. But this is an absolute disgrace when you look at what happened yesterday in that Jet-Dolphin game, especially toward the end. And we get, for all intents and purposes, the game was over. But with three and change left to go in the game, and they're down, what was it, 26-15? They were down 11. And for them to go on offense and try to make some plays and not even worry about the clock, not even have any sense of urgency knowing that they had three timeouts in their back pocket that they could hopefully go on a two-minute drive and again we understand that the jet offense certainly had a rough day after that first drive of the game where they just marched down the field and scored a touchdown you're thinking to yourself oh geez maybe this is actually going to be a little bit easy no no they're jets so that's not going to happen but for gays to just kind of capitulate at that point and say yeah well if we score here we score if not if not it was almost if he was taking out on his team to say, I don't care if I have three timeouts. I don't care if we still may have a shot in this game. I don't care even with the two-minute warning as a fourth timeout. No. I'm just going to play it as I see it, and that's that, and away we go. But no, what he does do is that they end up kicking a field goal with about, what was it, 19 seconds left. They kick the ball off. 15 seconds to go. Oh, as a matter of fact, they had an onside kick, so I apologize. It was an onside kick. Obviously, in this day and age... You're not going to see onside kicks recovered. I believe it's like 6% as opposed to 25% before the rules, obviously, when it comes to safety in the league. But now here it is, 15 seconds to go. Dolphins have the ball, I guess, at their own, or maybe they're past midfield. So let's say they're at the Jet 45. Fitzpatrick, who doesn't drop back to pass, but he takes a couple steps back because he wants to kill time. I'm sure he realized the Jets have three timeouts, not that the Jets are going to do anything. But then what happens is as he takes a knee, then Gaze calls a timeout. It was almost as if it was, he was throwing up two middle fingers, not only to the Dolphins, his former team that fired him, but also to his own organization and saying, well, you know what, now I'm going to call a timeout just because. They should have left him. He shouldn't even got to the bus yesterday. After his press conference, after taking a shower, whatever he did, as he was walking to the bus, and I read, 
on Twitter, Rich Tamini, he came out and said that Christopher Johnson looks pissed. I'll say it. And he put hashtag Jets. But he wasn't pissed enough to get in his coach's ear to say, listen, you may not even make this flight, let alone get on this bus. And if I was Christopher Johnson, which goes back to my original point, he wouldn't even gotten his first foot on that bus to get to the airport to come home. Because that is an embarrassing loss. And this is a Dolphin team. Let's face it. We all know that they're trying to tank. We all know that they want to get the number one pick so they could go ahead and try to draft either Justin Herbert from Oregon or even Tua to Govaloa. I haven't been practicing, so I think that's as close I'm going to get to getting his last name from Alabama. So as much as they're trying to tank and look ahead to 2020, all you got to do is look at that Steeler game, 14-3 at the end of the first half on a third and 20, how he had a zero blitz or uh, cover zero where he blitzed everybody, left the, the whole field open for where Deontay Johnston scores a touchdown and that's all you need to know about them not wanting to play 100% from here on out because they want that number one pick. But no. Christopher Johnson is, like I said, incompetent. He's a guy that, of course, with his dad now in England, not having total responsibility of his team, now it's all on Christopher Johnson. To me, he would have known a first down from a forward pass to save his life. And that's the bad thing about this ownership. Because until they somehow get it right, until they finally get a guy that they could bring in here, whether it's a Mike McCarthy type guy, a guy who has experience, which that's going to be the key word, people. So underline that as we move forward in this podcast. A guy that's going to bring a pedigree, that's going to bring a background, that's going to bring a resume to the table that you could say, we're sick and tired. Not only us as owners, but the fans. We hear it day in and day out, left and right. And not to say the the old adage... If you listen to the fans, you're going to be sitting with them. But guess what? The fans have been following this team a lot longer than you've been owner of this team. And maybe you should just take a listen to hear what they have to say. Maybe not from the standpoint of, oh, hire this guy or hire that guy. But maybe hiring a guy with experience, hiring a, everything that I just said actually makes a little bit of sense. But no. Two minutes after the season was over and they fired Todd Bowles, they bring in Adam Gase. I mean, and Gase is a disaster. All you got to do is go back to his press conference where he's looking like Frankenstein with his eyes wide open. I mean, that's all you need to know about the guy. And listen, I'm sure he's a nice guy. And we hear all the platitudes and the accolades from Peyton Manning about how he was the quarterback whisperer, which is an actual joke. And I understand coming from Peyton Manning, he's got to retract those words because Adam Gase has done absolutely squat as a head coach. As my old buddy John Guerrero, who I'm sure he's listening, would love to say... Adam Gaze has one coach as the New York Jets, which is one more win than I am, and I don't even coach. And that's all there is to it. And the next guy on that list, and it's almost going to be like, who's going to be the first guy fired this season? Now, we understand Jay Gruden was fired, so he's the first guy officially. But when you look at Adam Gaze, and you're also going to look at Freddie Kitchens, that's another guy who inherited a team that's a lot more talented than his Jet team, and they couldn't even win in Denver with a guy named Brandon Allen because Joe Flacco's on IR for the rest of the year, how is it possible that this guy is running this franchise? Now, we get the Browns are like a, a, almost another level when it comes to football. Like the Jets are the Patriots next to the Browns. And even with the Browns and everything that they've done in this offseason, and we, we don't have to go through the list. We all know. And for them right now to be 2-6, and six is a, that's an absolute disgrace. And I'm glad that's the case because they play in a division that my favorite team is in, and I hope that they go 2-14. And the Steelers haven't played him yet, so I could see it now. Watch them win or lose next week. Well, I got to see where they play, and I'll go through it. But the following week, they play Thursday night at home against Pittsburgh, which is going to be their Super Bowl because they have not beaten the Steelers in a million years. But with that said, Kitchens is another guy who's clueless, and you could go through all these games. The, the Patriot game last week, the week before that, where it just, it's nonstop. And even in the game yesterday, and I didn't watch the game, so I didn't really follow it closely. But there were some very questionable moves on his part, you know, going for it on fourth down when he shouldn't have, and so on and so forth. And that guy's in over his head, just like Adam Gase is. And it's just a shame because when you have teams that have talent, and the Jets have talent, if you think that the Jets do not have talent, then you don't know what they're talking. You're not watching football. Now, we get they don't have an offensive line. It's Swiss cheese. We understand that. And defensively, they don't have cornerbacks. We also get that. But they do have two very good safeties. Now, they traded Leonard Williams to the Giants, and the Giants, they're also clueless too, because why would you even think about trading for a guy who's going to be a free agent at the end of the year, but you're going to give up a third round, and if you do re-sign Leonard Williams, a fourth round pick next year. And what is, what's the Giants record as of right now? Two and five. So it's not like they're five and two, and the missing piece there on their interior line 
is Leonard Williams. No, they figured that let's trade for him. And they did the Jets just an enormous favor. Now, granted, it's a third round pick. It's not a first round pick, but at the same time, you, you know where I'm coming from. So that's the deal with Kitchens and Gaze. And it's just the, I mean, what could you say? If you're a fan of either one of those franchises, you just want to pull your hair out of your head. More so, I would think, in Cleveland, because everybody picked them to go to the Super Bowl, at least win a division. With the Jets, I'm sure a lot of people thought they could probably win nine games, and we could just throw that out the window. So that's what you have there. And then the one last thing, I'll talk about the Steelers real quick from this perspective, because when that trade was made after, I believe it was, what, week two, when... The Steelers traded an M1 pick for next year for Minka Fitzpatrick, the talented corner who was drafted by the Dolphins, as we all know, from Alabama, etc. Yada, yada, yada. At the time when that trade was made, now we didn't know that Sean Davis, their other safety, was going to be on IR. But when that trade was made, I was shocked, not only from the standpoint that they traded number one for, but that they actually got Minka Fitzpatrick, because as we talked about weeks ago, he was nowhere on the Steelers' radar. But then the Steelers realized, not only from the amount of money they're going to pay him over the next three years, which is going to be a pittance. Now, I understand if he continues to perform the way he has now, come year, next year, and the year after that, they're going to have to give him a significant bump. And that's all there is to it. But all the Steelers fans, including the writers, the old, crusty, old-school writers from Pittsburgh, and I've watched them and read them on Twitter, talking about, oh, this is a shame. Why would they do this? They're going to have one of the worst records in the sport. They should draft a quarterback, yada, yada, yada. And they talked about all that with Roethlisberger and him being hurt. But how I looked at it, and I've said it before, and I'll say it one last time. This team has too much pride. This organization knows that there's no way that they're just going to fold their tents up and throw in 2019. That's not to say that they're going to make a run at the division. That's not even to think that they're going to make the postseason, even after an 0-3 and a 1-4 start. But again, this is the Pittsburgh Steelers. There are There's no way on... Any Earth, whether it's whether it's Earth here in any galaxy, I should say, whether it's here somewhere in the stratosphere, Mars, etc., that the Steelers have that mentality that, well, well, oh shucks, we our quarterback's gone, so that means we're just going to just quit on the season. And as you see right now, if you look at the up to the second draft seeding possibilities. It's funny because the Jets are number two and the Dolphins are three, so they couldn't even get a quarterback right now. But the Steelers aren't even in the top fifteen. So I even said then, if you're going to get a guy of Mika Fitzpatrick's ilk, knowing that this is a guy that could certainly be an impact on your defense, and also a defense that's young, Devin Bushes of the world, the TJ Watts, Bud Dupree, I know that was his fourth year, so, but even still, he's still a young player, he's still trying to find his way in this league, and then you want to throw in on top of that, Terrell Edmonds, I mean, this is the makings of a good young defense for years to come. So to me, I thought it was a smart move. It was very shrewd to give up your number one pick, but to get a guy like that, and look what he's done here in the last two weeks, including that 96-yard interception for a touchdown, which was huge. So for everybody, all the Steeler fans that were just whining and crying and thinking that, ah, why did they do that for? Obviously, they don't know their team, which is a shame because then it makes me question, are you really a fan? So, but that's that. But that was a big win for Pittsburgh yesterday. Knowing that the Colts, and then of course with the Rams upcoming here to close out this three-game homestand that they have, because after this is going to get dicey. They're going to have five of the final seven games on the road, and those games are going to be tricky. Obviously, they end their season in Baltimore. They got the Browns coming up, and they still got to. Uh, they got some teams they could beat on a schedule. They still got to play the Bengals and maybe even Arizona. I know Arizona's a little bit improved, but uh, now they got some respectability. They're at five hundred. That was a big win by them yesterday, even with Brissett out of the game. And you just only hope that they could continue to just play well. It would have been great if the Ravens would have lost because then they would have been a game behind them, really a game and a half considering they lost to them earlier this year. But right now, you got to be happy where the Steelers are at. If they could somehow, some way, win this game against the Rams who are coming off a bye after beating the Bengals in London. And listen, they could be had. Why not? That offense is not the same. We understand when they get clicking, especially from the running back position, if they get anything out of their, you know, Gurley or whomever's going to be running the ball, that's fine. But we'll see. It, it's, it should be an interesting matchup and an interesting test, especially for the young quarterback. And give it up for Mason Rudolph, too, coming back from that concussion. And he's put together two decent games. The Dolphin game obviously was a little bit rusty and didn't really play well from the start. And certainly had his moments here in this game. But he makes throws 
We understand they make the, the offense is simplified for him, but he does take some shots, and I like that they do that. It's not just all underneath and dink and dunk. They do want to try to stretch the field when the opportunity does arise. So give it up to them, and let's see what they could do here moving forward. So that's what you got there with the NFL. And when you're looking at the games next week, <clears throat> excuse me, your Thursday night game is Chargers-Raiders. That could be a loser-leaves-town match because I believe both teams are 3-5. and five. I got to look at the standings. Rams-Steelers, like I said, decent. That's a 425 game. I think you're going to get that locally, which would be great. Then uh, you got nothing really else to chew. I look, you got Bills-Browns, Ravens-Bengals, Chiefs-Titans, Falcons-Saints. The Jet-Giant game is going to be fascinating from this regard. If Gaze and the Jets do not show up for this game, Christopher Johnson, for whatever, whatever's running around in your brain right now, you have to th- lay the axe. You got to. And I'm not going to be an advocate for getting people fired, but what else? If the Giants go in there and they win a 27-10 game and they just dominate, what do you do? What do you do? And you know Lennon Williams is going to be pumped up for that game. Can you see Lennon Williams? Two and a half sacks, fumble recovery, etc. It has the makings of all that. And you know, I didn't even get into Sam Darnold. And listen, to me, I just want to put this all on the coach. We could talk about Darnold and him regressing after coming back, playing that great game against the Cowboys, but... I digress. So that's what you have there. Jets, Giants. That's going to be fascinating just from that regard. The Sunday night game is Vikings-Cowboys. So that's something that you could uh, sink your teeth into. And then you have Seahawks 49ers. So you have a, a good Sunday night game, good Monday night game. Other than that, besides Rams-Steelers, Sunday's just a bore. Cardinals-Bucks, Dolphins-Colts, Panthers-Packers. Ugh. So we will certainly see... What's going to happen as we now get deeper into November, we get deeper into this NFL season, and uh, away we go. All right, quickly with college football, you had the big game, the only one game this weekend was Georgia and Florida, and Georgia prevailed to the point where now they moved up in the rankings, they are now fifth in the country, where Florida now drops to 10, that's pretty much the only thing that was noteworthy over the weekend as far as college football. Of course, everybody's waiting for the big matchup, and we'll wait and see who's going to start at quarterback. Uh, Tua Tagovailo is going to be a game-time decision, as per Nick Saban. 3.30, LSU at Alabama, so the game in Tuscaloosa. Until I see otherwise, even if Tua starts the game, until I see with my own two eyes that LSU could go in there and beat them, then I got to pick Alabama. I'm sorry. And listen, I'm not a college football expert, as if you listen, everybody knows, but... And maybe they do. Maybe it's time for the Tigers to finally upset the apple cart and to go in there in Tuscaloosa, not to say they're going to play a dominant game and just run all over them amok. But at the same time, until I see them fall apart or until I see Alabama finally, somehow, some way, not find a way to win a game, I'm going to pick them to win. And I can't stand Alabama, as everybody knows. So let's see if LSU could uh, hold up to being a number one for an extra week. So that obviously is the... Game of the year by any stretch. And then you also have Penn State and Minnesota. That's also a a big marquee matchup later on. Penn State because on the road. And actually with them being ranked in the top 10. Really, what are they ranked now? Actually, they're ranked 5th right now. If I said Georgia was, so maybe Georgia. I got to check the latest on the top 25. But Penn State, if they certainly want to be a part of the pack here. That's a big game for them to win at Minnesota. So let's see if they could go ahead and do that. And that's pretty much what you have in college football. If you had anything else, there really wasn't much to shake a stick at if you ask me. But when you look at the rankings here, as far as uh, up to the minute, top 25 here in the NCAAs, we all know LSU. Clemson, I believe, is still ranked there at four. Georgia, as a matter of fact, they're sixth. I said fifth before, so that's my error there. So to rank the top 10 again, LSU, Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson are your top four, followed by... Penn State, Georgia, Oregon, Utah, Oklahoma, and Florida would rank out your uh, top 10 there in uh, college football. All right, now we'll turn our attention to baseball. The World Series is now come and gone, and what could you say? So many things to discuss here, especially when you get into those final couple of games, in particular Game 7, if you're a baseball fan. The one thing that uh, I'm going to take away from this World Series, I said it last week, and I'll say it again. It wasn't a classic World Series. I get that a lot of the games were close. And then either Washington went away late or even Houston went away late. When you look in particular at Game 4. 
even to a certain extent, Game 6. And when you think about it, even Game 7. In Game 7, they were down 2-0 in the 7th inning. Rendon is the big home run of Granke. Then he walks Soto, and then he take him out to bring in Will Harris to pitch to Howie Kendrick. He hits the home run, and then they run away with the game. So to start off with Game 7, here's the problem that I had with Hinch. And I get a lot of people are saying, oh, they should have put Garrett Cole there after he walked Soto. How I looked at it was, I would have let Granke pitch. Now, I get that after the home run and the walk, especially with Granke, knowing that he had pitched phenomenal. Gave him one hit through six innings. I even tweeted last week, the reason why they brought Granke there was to have that big game. And in the postseason, he actually he's done nothing. He's actually been underwhelming. So here it was now, game seven, title on the line, six innings, he gives up one hit. He gets that first out, he gives up the home run to Rendon, all right, tip your cap, bad pitch. Then he walks Soto, he thought he had him on a 2-1 pitch. Now it becomes 3-1, whole different complexion of the at-bat, walks him, and he's on 80 pitches. I would have let, let him pitch to Kendrick there. Now, if Kendrick would have got a base hit to tie the game, he's gone. That's all there is to it. So, with now Hinch now bringing in Will Harris, who he even, had, his own admission, had said that Will Harris is tired. Will Harris is on fumes. So he brings him in, and mind you, give it up to Howie Kendrick. He had, it was a very good pitch by Harris. I don't want to say very good, but it was a good pitch. He had to go out there and reach for it. He got down got after it, and sure enough, it was parked over the right field wall where it hit the netting on the foul pole, and the Nats took the lead and never looked back. But here's the problem I had with Hinch. Okay, Will Harris, if he was tired, why couldn't you go to Urquidy? Why didn't you go to Osuna at that point? Osuna's your closer. So, in the post game, I get that he said the only way Garrett Cole was coming in that game is if he was going to close for one inning or if they had the lead. We get that they didn't have the lead there 3-2, but you know what? In order to stabilize that game, even if Osuna went in, and let's say he gave up the home run, and he pitched the rest of that inning, Garrett Cole has to come in that game in the top in the top of the eighth inning. He has to. And people could say, oh, well, he just pitched three days before, or two days. Well, you pitched Sunday night, then Wednesday, so he had two days rest. You're down 3-2. Why are you going to put him in the game where you're trailing? Well, guess what? We don't know, and we'll never know how it's going to work out, but this is for a World Series title. A.J. Hinch won his World Series two years ago on the strength of Lance McCullers and Charlie Morton, who, by the way, were starting pitchers. And granted that, he do, you don't want to bring him in a dirty inning. I get that. You want to bring him in a clean inning. It's 3-2. to two. You have to keep that game at 3-2 to give your team the best chance possible. What happens? Soto gets an RBI hit in the eighth inning. And then the clincher, Adam Eaton, getting that base hit up the middle, the two-run single to make it 6-2. Good night, the lights. The Nats have a title. Garrett Cole had to be in that game. He had, in the top of the eight, there was no ifs, ands, buts, maybes about He had to be in that game. And you would think A.J. Hinch, who had been down that road before, would have known better. In the immortal words of Carl Weathers, Rocky Three is my buddy, my man, my mellow JD, as we talk about from time to time again, there is no tomorrow. So, that's all I got to say about Hinch and what he did. And give credit to the Nats. I understand I'm pounding on the, Nats, on the Astros. But the Nats, we could go through the whole laundry list. And I got to give it up. I never would have thought in a million years that they would have come back the way they did. And generally, when it comes to a franchise, now, I'm not trying to compare this franchise to the Cubs. I'm not trying to compare this franchise to any other snake-bitten Franchises that their fan base is just sick over the Indians. Uh, I'll even say the Mets for that regard. Because anytime that you go through some suffering in a postseason, anytime that you win a division title like you did in 2012, like you did in 2014, like you did in 2016 and 2017, and you lost all those games, the deciding games, game fives, all those games were lost at home. For them to get into the postseason, and we kind of should have seen this, and as sports fans, for those who've watched sports forever, or if you're a casual fan, just keep note. For the diehard fan, when you had that incident in right field, down 3-1 against Milwaukee, where Trent Grisham, and I'm sure the Nationals, their players, their organization, they're going to send Christmas cards to Trent Grisham. Because if Grisham makes a play on that ball, the game is tied. The ball doesn't go all the way to the wall, all three run score, and the Nationals go on to win the wild card and play the Dodgers. When you look at moments, plays like that, those are ones that are going to be etched forever. Or when you look at that 
Eighth inning, when Kershaw gave up the home runs to Rendon and Soto back-to-back. When you look at Howie Kendrick, hits a grand slam in the top of the 10th inning to win the DS on the road. A game, as I've said before, at home they can never close out. Sweeping the Cardinals the way they did. And then to win the first two games in Houston the way they did. Beating both Cole and Verlander. To come home to only score three runs in the three games. And I thought to myself, I said that the Astros are going to win game six. Why not? Verlander's on the mound. And they got to him late. And here they are in a game seven. And that morning I got up and I said, uh-uh. This Magic Carpet ride is not going to end tonight. They're going to win this game. I predicted 7-4 because I just felt that this team overcame everything. And they certainly did from the tune of five elimination games going 5-0 and and trailing in all five of those games, I might add. The one thing that gets forgotten in this, they won eight straight road playoff games. Only the Yankees did that in the 96 postseason where they won the two in Texas, the three in Baltimore, and obviously the three in Atlanta. After losing game one to the Dodgers... On the road, they never lost ever since. Also, Steven Strasburg. I get that you could have given the MVP to Rendon. You could have given the MVP to Juan Soto. But Strasburg and that performance in game six was extraordinary. Eight and a third. He gave up two runs in the first inning and he never looked back. He was dominant. And he was worthy of being an MVP. We'll get into Strasburg in a minute as far as what's going to happen here now with free agency. But the... Nationals overcame all the odds. Everything. To the tune of them winning a World Series. Was I happy for them? No. (laughs) I know my guy Tony Paduano, who's down in uh, D.C., who's a huge Nats fan. Also, you know, Capitals, etc., whatever. So I had to give it up to him. I used to rig him a lot and rag on him, but hey, I couldn't this time around. They were as resilient as a baseball team we've seen in quite some time. And give it up to them. They deserved it. And I want to say this also, if you're the, just to transition out of free agency, if you're Ted Lerner and the group that runs the Nationals, the ownership, I get that you're, now you really got to put up. If I'm them right now, you got to just give a blank check to both Strasburg and Rendon. You can't blow this thing up. And now they're going to blow it up, but they, they just can't let them walk. Now they offered Rendon seven for 210, what was it? Sometime in September and he turned it down. Well, guess what? Now you got to say, all right, what's Arenado making? I'm giving you $20 million on top of that. Maybe give him less years, but more annual and away you go. Arenado, I think, got eight. And Arenado, he's probably around the same age as Rendon. Y- you got to do it, man. And if you're not going to do it, if you're going to let him walk, if you're going to let Strasburg work because you figured, oh, we have Scherzer, we have Corbin, so we have two good start- solid starters, top of the rotation guys. Okay, fine. Well, do what the Braves did with Ronald Acuna Jr. And you better not even think twice. Show Juan Soto the money. Because as I've, I don't want to say argued, because everybody says, and I'll throw another name drop here, my, my man BP, Brandon Pedroza. When I tried to say Soto's the better player than Gleyber Torres, he's like, ah, oh, you're just a hater. You got to get on Gleyber. And now listen, Gleyber is, <laughs> Mets a good trade from tomorrow. Bring him on. We understand he's a young town. He's going to be probably a future MVP at some point. But Soto, you see, that guy has it, man. That guy has it. His outfield play, eh, not crazy about. And that was a big play in that game, too, when you think about it. That line drive that was hit, I believe, was it uh, was it Bregman that hit that ball? And he had to dive to make that play? Or maybe it was Guriel? And that was a scary. That could have broken the game open for the Astros in Game 7. But, man, Soto, he has the swag. He has, he knows that strike zone and boy, does that kid have a flair for the dramatic. And I get that, you know, look at him first base. He, with Bregman hitting that home run, he carried the bat to first base and Soto followed suit. Hey, you know, he's figured, hey, if he could do it, I could do it too. And it was all in good fun. So I'm not going to get on both of those guys for that. It's not as if he was rounding second, he still had the bat in his hand, you know, but. But yeah, they got to show Soto the money because if they did that for Acuna already in Atlanta, they got to do the same. They can't even think about Sort of going to year three, year four arbitration and then have to worry about his free agency then. Sign this guy, lock him up now. That's it. And I'm not going to go through all the names, but you have Strasburg. You have also Garrett Cole. Cole looks like he wants to go back on the West Coast. He's from Newport Beach, so it looks like the Anaheim Angels are going to be the front runner to get him. 
Strasburg, are the Padres going to get in the mix? They've been looking for a pitcher for the longest time. Do they plunk another 250 to 300 million considering they plunked 300 for Machado last year and the year before that, 170 or whatever it was for Eric Hosmer? You know, Zach Wheeler, what's going to happen with him? You also got guys like Jose Abreu, Didi Gregorius, Yasiel Puig. Those are guys that certainly are could make an impact on a team here in the upcoming year. Now, we'll see what happens. We have the awards that are going to be given out next week, I believe. Rookie of the Year, Manager of the Year, MVP, etc. And I believe next Monday is the manager, or I should say the GM or owners meetings that are going to take place in Arizona. So I'm sure you're going to hear a lot of hot stoves starting from then. And we'll see how this all shakes out. I'm certainly looking forward to it. We'll obviously handicap that in the weeks to come here on the J-Rose Podcast. But now let's get to Carlos Beltran, the Met manager. And let's go back to the word that I underlined about 20 minutes ago. And it talks about experience. Now, I understand maybe a little bit strong about talking both about the Mets and the Jets being failures. No, I have to take that back. They are definitely incompetent. And the reason why I say that is because here's the Mets, and this is in no way, shape, or form to crucify Carlos Beltran. Because we don't know how he is as a manager. We don't know if he's going to be Gabe Kapler or if he's going to be Alex Cora. Let's hope he's the latter than the former. And it would be some nice symmetry considering that two years ago, or really last year when you think about it, 2018, Alex Cora wins the World Series, Puerto Rican. Dave Martinez wins the World Series this year, Puerto Rican, and then... Carlos Beltran, maybe it could uh, be a hat trick of sorts to get a sweep for the Latinos, for the Puerto Ricans out there rooting for them to win a World Series. But with that being said, the organization itself, and I'm not going to go back to Joe Girardi, as I said, talked about that last week, and they blew it with that, whatever. But here's the deal. The Mets already went down this road with a first-time manager in a one Mickey Callaway. And how did that work out? And we understand baseball 2019, we get that it seems they want to have control, meaning the front office, or in this particular case, Brody Van Wagenen, to have not only just a rapport with the manager, but to be able to, I'll just say influence the manager as far as decision making is concerned. When it comes to lineups, maybe pitchers, things of that nature. So I watched this press conference today, and the two things that really stuck out with me Now, Brody had this list of five attributes that he thought was deserving of Carlos Beltran becoming the manager of this team. So three and five really just, I don't know, they they just made my stomach turn. The third one was growth mindset because he's a learner. So to me, what that necessarily, that's just, oh, he's a learner. So what we're going to tell, what we're going to do is we're going to tell Carlos not necessarily what to do, but we're certainly going to give him all the information possible in hopes that he could push that to his players and hopefully get a good return when it comes to victories and, God willing, a playoff spot for 2020. Because to me, when I looked at that, it's like a growth mindset. Like, What does that mean? I understand he wants to grow in a position. He's never been a manager before. Uh, all right, we get that. But a, a growth mindset? Uh, to me, that, that was just some cockamamie nonsense. And then number five was his understanding of players. That in using Brody's words, I want a player's first organization. I want him to be and will be a player's manager. Did you get that from the last guy that was walked in through that door? And how did that turn out? Now, to Mickey's credit, they did play for him down the stretch of last year to the tune of them being 10 games over 500. So, you know what? Whatever it did, it, it worked. But just because he's a player's manager and just because Carlos... He may have a pulse of the city because he played here and he may have forged a lot of relationships in baseball or even maybe with some of these players over the years through other players. Because again, Beltran hasn't been part of this organization since 2011, but I'm sure him still being in New York and he was a special advisor for the Yankees. So I would think that in contact with certain guys, Omar Minai in particular, and of course Minai was the guy who signed them back in 2005. Hey, maybe he asked about certain players. Hey, how is Jacob DeGrom? Hey, what do you think about Pete Alonso? Etc. So that's all well and good. And we can have hugs, drink uh, hot chocolate, and everything is fine and dandy. But, on the line, but, 
What about situations in the game? What about having to double switch? What about having to take out a picture? What about having to, knowing when to pull a reliever? Knowing when you can't be a slave to the pitch count, especially if it's in July and you're in the middle of a tight pennant race, or even August for that matter. All these things. And that's the one thing that you don't hear. Can he manage? I don't care if he's going to play psychiatrist. I've been down that road before. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear how is this guy going to win? How is this guy going to manage this team? Yes, I understand he's going to have to develop these relationships. I understand he's going to have to forge some sort of positivity and unity and love and kumbaya. I get that. But right, when it comes to the soup to nuts and nuts and bolts of everything, how do we know that he is the man capable for the job? And somebody asked him that question about Joe Girardi and he deflected it. Brody Van Wagenen, that is, from the point where it's like, well, we looked at all the candidates and there wasn't just one and we just felt that Carlos' attributes were a lot better than what we saw from all the other managers. Okay, well, I guess a guy who was two in the games over 500, who managed in New York, who won a World Series, uh, which just wasn't right to for this team that knows that they're just probably that much more closer to a World Series having him there than a guy that's a first-year manager and even though he's a former player in the team, but still, nah, I, I think we're just going to scrap Joe Girardi that doesn't mean anything we want to go with a guy that we know we can pull the puppet strings on yeah it's just I tell you man I mean you know and then to hear Brody come out with the garbage you know oh I want him to serve the players the communities the Met fans blah, blah. what about managing what about managing a game and yes you could come to me and say well give him a chance of course you're going to give him a chance you know I don't want I want to be wrong on this and again this has nothing to do with Carlos Beltran for all I know maybe he comes out and he's the next Philippe Alou I don't know now, Philippe Lillard never won anything, but at the same time, at least he was successful when he was the manager of the Giants and even the Expos before the strike of 94. But let's face it, people. We've seen this movie the first time around. And like I said, he's the Alex Cora or Gabe Kapler. It remains to be seen, but it all goes back to that five-letter word back in early August. For those who didn't listen to the podcast, and maybe whether you're a Met fan or not, you want to go back in the archives... You can go wherever you get your podcast or even go to the website at jreels.com and find out for yourself that five-letter word that goes back to the top of this organization, to the GM, et cetera, et cetera. It's T-R-U-S-T. And unfortunately, I do not have a lot of trust in them, nor do I have a lot of faith. Yes, do I want to believe? Is there hope? Can he be a good? Yeah, we're all going to wait and see. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of time between now and then before we get a chance to see. It's not like the season starts next week. But at the same time, it goes back to the organization bringing in the guy who right now, after his first year, Brody Van Wagen has been a disaster. Because other than J.D. Davis, let's not even go through this. And it's one year, I get you got to grow into the job. You talk about the growth mindset there. Well, let's get cracking there, Brody. Resign Wheeler, get some people in here, get a bullpen, and let's go. Because I can't go through another year of this nonsense again. So that's what you have there with the baseball. All right, let me wrap it up with a couple of things before I uh, bid adieu. NBA last week, I know you had that crazy game. Speaking of Washington, Houston, they had a game for the ages, 159 and 158, where James Harden scored 59 points. But the crazy thing is it didn't even top the all-time. You would think 159 for 158, I'm sure for the neophyte or for the, uh, as I like to call the prison of the moment NBA fan, they probably looked at that as being, oh, that has to be the highest scoring game in NBA history. It was not, not even close. If you remember that game, Denver-Detroit, many, many moons ago, Alex English, Kiki Vandaway, Isaiah Thomas, of course. When you look at that score, at 186-184, I mean, that was, ugh, that, that made 159-158 look like it was uh, Nick's Heat back in the playoffs of 2000, or I should say, in 1997. So that was a game that certainly raised my eyebrows when I saw that final score because that's one you rarely see. Now you get to see teams go in the 140s. Usually it's like a 140 to 114 type game, but for two teams in the 150s, that's certainly a rarity. Uh, Two other things. The Warriors right now, as we all know, between Kevin Durant leaving out the door, Andre Iguodala being released, Sean Livingston retiring, and Klay Thompson not playing this year, that Steph Curry was certainly going to be the man doing all the heavy lifting. Well, Obviously, his left hand is not going to be doing any lifting here for the next three months as he broke his hand the other night. And they have certainly gotten off to a very, very slow start to the point where I don't even think they're going to be a factor this year. And what's this? Hey, it happens. I mean, what are you going to do? But it's interesting because here it is. They had this tremendous run. They go into this brand spanking new sparkling building, the Chase Center. 
hoping that they would bring back Kevin Durant, hoping that they would be able to continue this succession of not necessarily just championships, but just making it to the title, to the finals, and being able to continue this dynastic run. But here they are now where they have a bunch of players. What is it? Nine guys on the team that are 23 or younger. And the only guy that's pretty much left standing out of all these guys are Draymond Green because even Kevin Looney's hurt. So it looks like right now, as of right now, Golden State, they're going to be irrelevant this year. Unless Curry, by some stretch of the imagination, comes back six weeks earlier and can salvage their season because we all know the West is very loaded. And then last but not least, you know, Joel Embiid, when is this guy going to grow up? I understand he gets into this, and it wasn't even a fight last week. It was more of a wrestling match where he even had MMA guys break down his, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's not even, a, well, you say a melee between him and the Timberwolves, Carl Anthony Towns. But why is it that Joel Embiid has to resort to these type of tactics? Especially in the postgame. Because here he is coming out and saying, and I'm going to say this bluntly. And this is to use, this is his quote. Here he is, he's talking about, oh, it was no big thing, it was just heat of the battle. But then he comes out and says, I ain't no bitch. And then he laughs right after that. Uh, Joel, really my guy? Now here's a guy that couldn't stay in shape toward the end of the year. And listen, I admired his passion going off the floor, crying when losing that game. That, that was just a heartbreaking loss to Kawhi Leonard in that shot seen around the world, the NBA world that is. And I love that. I said, you know what? I got to give it up to him because so many players after the games, they yuck it up and they're smiling and laughing after just a devastating loss. And here was a guy that was walking to the locker room in tears. So I commended him for that. But to me, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, he's like, he's Dwight Howard 2.0. And people could be fall off their chairs or run, run their cars off the road right now and say, oh, Jay Reels, you're bugging out. You're wilding. What are you, crazy? Well, he's on that same path. Not being in shape, front running type of player. Yeah, wants to yuck it up when things are good, but when it gets down and dirty and ugly and whatever, and he wants to joke everything aside. And we get this is who he is. It's not like he's going to turn into Moses Malone where he's going to have that steely stare and he's going to just run over everybody no matter what, or even if he has to go through his own mom, whatever it may be, that was, oh, stand back. He's taking no prisoners and kicking ass and taking names. But no, he's not that type of player. And unless that DNA somehow, some way does a 180, He's going to continue to be that player. Or well, I like to get in my opponent's heads. I tell you, boy, if this was the NBA 10 years ago and he played with Kevin Garnett, he would look, he would shrink on the court. And I get, I can't go back in time. I get that all oh, Jay Reels, how yeah, here you are being the old man on the block and get off my lawn or whatever. But you know, it's just a disgrace. You know, I like that he's, he wants to play the game and he wants to be that force and so on and so forth. And again, the coaching staff, that's another standpoint. Yeah, I'm not, I won't even get into that. Because I feel like even in this day and age with the NBA and playing on the perimeter, he plays on the perimeter too much. But with all that being said, he's a guy that he should just focus on him, focus on his team, forget about getting in the heads of other players, forget about trying to be something you're not. Don't try to be Kevin Garnett. Don't try to be Dennis Rodman. Don't try to be Gary Payton. And certainly don't try to be Michael Jordan when it comes to trash talking to other players. Just don't. Because that's all an act. And that's why Dwight Howard is all an act. Smiling at the crowd. Yeah, I've gotten 30 points, 25 rebounds in a 118-88 game. Oh, yeah, I'm flossing. Everything's great. But, yeah, when you get punched in the mouth, when you're you're going through it and you're going 2 for 10 on the floor, you're the type of guy who wants to keep your head down and shrug your shoulders and, oh, why me? And that's just typical. I just hate it. I can't stand it. So that's what you got there. But the NBA right now is off two weeks into the season. And without going through, you're pretty much going to have the same scenario when it comes to what's happening, what's not happening. I know the Lakers now won five in a row, so Laker fans are now rejoicing at the duo of LeBron and Anthony Davis. And even with that said, I know the Phillies been undefeated too, so you got to give them credit. But I just don't like the tactics by Embiid. I mean, that just that, to me, that just bugs me. The Heat are off to a tremendous start. They actually beat the Rockets yesterday, 129-100, so 5-1. and one, And that's without Jimmy Butler those first few games because... He was off with his uh, girlfriend, wife, whomever it may be, who was having a baby. So you didn't see him those first few games. So now he's back in the mix. So the Heat have gotten off to a pretty surprising uh, start. Also out west with the Lakers winning five in a row after losing opening night to the Clippers. Minnesota certainly played well. Their only losses to the Sixers in the game we just talked about. 
Clippers, Dallas has played pretty well. So you've gotten pretty good starts from teams that, you know, Denver, eh, 4-2. Phoenix, how about them? They've certainly, nobody would have thought that they would have get out the gate the way they have. So the NBA looks like, and when you're going through these standings here, certainly looking at some of these teams and you think to yourself, wow, now it's going to be sustainable for some of these teams that were not expecting it. That remains to be seen. And I would, chances are, I'd say no. You know, Indiana struggled. But the NBA, listen, you need to have these teams get off to good starts. So it's good for the league when the Lakers are 5-1 right now. Even Miami, for that matter. And Miami, they're pretty much a nondescript team. You know, you think of Jimmy Butler and Justice Winslow, and that's it. You think of who else is on that team. But, you know, but they have players. And with that system, Eric Spolstra, they're going to do well. Now, who knows over the long term. Remains to be seen. Celtics 4-1, they've gotten off to a very good start. Now, I understand they've beaten the Knicks a couple times, and... Teams, they actually play Charlotte. So this week, you'll have Kemba going back to Charlotte for the first time. So that's something to keep an eye on, see what he does against his former team. And Terry Rozier, I don't even know if he's playing, because Charlotte, to me, they're an afterthought. And uh, the Knicks have certainly uh, stumbled on hard times. No shock there as they're 1-6. But that's what you got there as far as the association is concerned. And hockey, again, I, I got something I'll get into hockey in a minute, which is, uh, might as well just translate to that as we uh, get to close. And forgive me for my hockey fans out there. But now with baseball gone, I understand we have some hot stove coming up and some other things. But as I said to you before, as we get deeper into the fall and obviously with the winter sports, we'll certainly get into a little bit more hockey. I know the Islanders have won nine in a row. Shocker there. But they even with that nine-game winning streak, they're still three points behind the Capitals in the Metropolitan Division. So we'll get into more hockey as time goes on, I promise. But we'll segue now to close out with our hero and zero of the week. And my hero of the week is Canelo Alvarez. I did not watch the fight the other night. I know it was a big fight between him and Sergey Kovalev. But he wins in 11 rounds. Knockout of Kovalev. He wins the light heavyweight title. And with that, he is now a champion in four weight divisions. Which, to say... And I didn't realize he was fighting for a light heavyweight bout here. I had no clue. Alvarez's only blemish... Now, he has a couple of draws. But the only blemish was that fight against Mayweather that he had a few years back. But Canelo, give it up to him, going up in weight class four times, four-time champ. And as we've said time and time again, you know, boxing, I know I should have probably put a little bit more focus on this to watch the fight. But as it was, you had the UFC bout. And with Nate Diaz, I know he was the headliner there. I forgot who he went against, but Diaz loses. And then the actual fight didn't start to 118 Eastern because it didn't want to go head-to-head with the MMA fight. You know, it was a, kind of a disgrace when you think about it. When you see Canelo, it looked like he was sleeping as well as uh, Kovalev. They were just lounging as the cameras were going back and forth between the MMA bout and the championship bout. So, with that, it, be that as it may, so Canelo Alvarez, you're the hero of the week. And my zero of the week, I'm going to try not to spend a lot of time on this, but you know how I feel about this league and what they've done over the years. So, I'm going to try to keep this concise, my guys. My zero is the NHL. Why would they suspend Milan Lucic for two games because of a roughing penalty? Now, if you watch the game, I didn't get the guy's name. Cole, I forgot. I got to look back. It's Cole. Uh, let me see if I could uh, look at this up real quick. To me, it's not even about the names. It's not even about, now what Lucic did. So the the opposing player, he went ahead and was jabbing at the goalie, and in jabbing at the goalie, of course, Lucic took. Umbridge to that, and he went over, and he, with the glove on, mind you, took a swing and connected with the player on his head, fell to the ice, and a scrum ensued, and the rest was history. So it was just one big giant mess. So here we go. I'm going to pull this up right now. So Lucic was suspended two games for roughing Cole Sherwood. He's a forward on the Columbus Blue Jackets. So Sherwood goes ahead, and he jabs at the goalie, where Luchas came out and he gave him a roundhouse right and he knocked him over to the left, I believe, and knocked him to the ice. But it wasn't as if it was a sucker punch or it was in broad daylight. or It was in broad daylight, but to the extent it was, hey, listen, Cole saw it coming. He could have ducked. He could have tried to move, whatever, but didn't. And he got suspended for two games for roughing. So now here's my problem with the NHL. If that was Alexander Ovechkin, would there have been a roughing penalty or would there have been a suspension attached to that? And I don't want to hear about Lucic. Oh, he has a history. Oh, he's a tough guy in the league, so he has a reputation, so on and so forth. No, because if that was somebody else, if that let's say it was Sidney Crosby. And Crosby's been known to get into some scrums over the years. Now, obviously, he's not 
anywhere near Milan Lucic as far as reputation, as far as toughness, as far as being just a enforcer on the ice. We get that. But please, uh, are you kidding here? To give him two-game suspension because of a roughing? I could see if it was a sucker punch. I could see if he skated around the ice, he just dropped his gloves and just pounded on him. Okay, all right, fine. You got to discipline the guy, no problem. But for them to suspend him for two games over that, it's an out-and-out disgrace to the game I once loved. And I've said this time and time again. Back in the 80s and 90s, my first love was baseball, always will be. Hockey was 1A. And I loved the NFL and I loved the NBA, but I loved hockey. Hockey was just, it's a whole other stratosphere back then the way it was today. And I know that the young young fan doesn't get involved and they look at that as like, ah, you know, you're a dinosaur. Why are you taking the game back 30 years, so on and so forth? Well, the game was better. A hell of a lot better. This is a disaster what you watch on the ice. If somebody gave me season tickets to the Islanders, and I'm a huge Islander fan. I love them. And I want them to win a Stanley Cup. And I understand it's all about winning. It's not about penalty minutes. Although I love to see a penalty, uh, a statue with penalties, you know, 40 minutes and penalties. I love that. Misconducts, game misconducts, fighting. I mean, geez, there's nothing better in sports than to see that. But if you gave me season tickets to the Islanders, I still wouldn't go to all the games. Because the game's a joke. It's a shell of what once was. And right, just like life and everything, it, it evolves. But you know what? Even if it does evolve, it still took a lot of the integrity. It took a lot of the passion. And to this day, if two players are going to fight on the ice, two tough guys, whether they square off or in a scrum or whatever, nobody boos. Nobody heads to the exits. Nobody shrieks in horror. Nobody looks at this like, oh my God, you know, why are these players fighting? No. Because it's part of the game and it always has been. But the NHL doesn't get that. Because, oh, we have to have this now shiny new toy. And we got to make sure you know everything has to be prim and proper in 2019. Considering the NFL has done the same thing. And some of the other practices that goes, I'm sure, throughout other leagues. But they sacrificed that and compromised it for a fan like me who could not care less if they played hockey in my own living room. But I'll leave it at that. They are my zero of the week. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, people. I'm uh, just grateful and thankful that you took the time out of your day to download and listen to what it is I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports. And I implore you, as I do each and every week, for those who are listening to me for the very first time or have listened to me forever since I uh, go back to episode one back in March of 2018. That's right. I've been doing this now almost two years, and I appreciate all the love and support from you guys. And if I could also ask you, to follow me, subscribe on any of the platforms that you listen to your podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, iHeartRadio, I'm on all those platforms. Yes, please feel free to subscribe, leave a rating, post a review, because all that's going to do is just to increase the visibility of this program. And as we all know, there are a zillion podcasts out there, not just sports, and we all know there are plenty of those, but just podcasts in general. So by doing so, it will also generate some interest with Future guests, which I'm trying to work on behind the scenes, remember, this is a one-man operation. I don't have minions below me. Well, I shouldn't say minions, but you get what I'm saying. I don't have PAs or interns that work for me that could do a lot of the stuff behind the scenes. Uh, this is a one-man operation. So uh, whatever assistance that you could do on your end by going ahead and subscribing, leaving a review, posting a rating will be absolutely tremendous for the podcast, as well as following me on any of my social media platforms, whether it's on Instagram, Reels. The J Reels podcast, my fan page on Facebook, J Reels One, just a number on Twitter. And you could either send me a DM on any of those platforms or even an email at the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. As I'll uh, just be forever grateful and thankful for any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, I'll be sure to answer you back. And then also, if you want to support the program as far as what it is that I do, whether it comes to production, equipment, Advertising, marketing, as I have a couple of commercials. I'm actually in the process of filming a third commercial. That's right. So keep an eye on those, which will be on all of my social media accounts. And I'll certainly let you guys know when that will be uh, airing. But of course, uh, any of the production to this podcast, if you want to make a contribution, you can go to my Patreon page at uh, www.patreon. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy.com slash the J Reels podcast. And of course... With not only just your participation in subscribing and following, etc., but also any contributions, I will be forever indebted to you guys as I deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports, whether it's on the 
gridiron, on the ice, on the diamond, on the hardwood, on the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Rose Podcast, on the flip, baby.